we do need more than just that typical self-care. And it's not about being selfish. It's about actually being the best parent we can. We cannot parent in the way these kiddos require if we're not doing our own work and filling our bucket up. Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey, friends. My guest today is what I call a power guest. She's the adoptive mother of a child who has faced significant neurobehavioral challenges. And she's a licensed clinical social worker who supports parents of kids with special needs. Did you catch that? I'm sure you take the time to seek out resources for your child. But did you know there are professionals who focus on supporting you as a parent? Eileen Devine, my guest, focuses her practice on helping parents feel more competent and confident in connecting with their kids and devising ways they can feel and function better themselves. Her professional focus, combined with her personal experience, gives her a deep understanding of the emotional stress parents face when their kids are struggling. In this conversation, she explains how to recognize the signs and symptoms of stress and shares some practical strategies for filling your bucket and building resilience. I can't wait for you to hear this. So here you go, my conversation with Eileen Devine. Hi, Eileen. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, and I've been looking forward to this conversation because... You're not just focused on parenting and giving parents advice. You're helping parents in and of themselves learn how to build resilience and feel and function better when they're raising a child who's complicated. Yes, that is in my best work what I do, and I love the work that I do. I'm really honored to be here and to be talking with you about all of that stuff today. So thank you for asking me. Yeah, you're welcome. So let's dig right in. Should we just go to the beginning of which came first, your professional life or your child? Sure. Yes. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I work as a therapist in a private practice. And I've been a licensed clinical social worker for a long time, much longer than I've had my daughter. So that came first, although the work that I was doing then was much different than it is now. It wasn't till several years, actually more than several years after getting into this field that we adopted my daughter. She was a brand new little baby when we adopted her and learned really quickly that her development wasn't typical, that there were some things that were confusing to us. And that sent me on this completely different path of trying to figure out what was going on with her so that I could be the best parent possible for her. And then once I started learning more and more about that, I just felt like it was something that we weren't talking enough about in the parenting world. It wasn't this parenting differently paradigm is very unique and there's nobody talking about it. And so I felt like "Ah, I've got to do what I can to change that and make sure that parents have access to information that they might be missing that can make such a big difference in their own world, um, but more importantly, in their relationship with their child. 
That's why I was so excited when I stumbled upon you online and saw your article and it just resonated. And I feel the same way that, I mean, I'm not a therapist, I'm just a mom, but <laughs> I had noticed the same thing that people aren't talking about kind of the emotional upheaval and the shifts that parents need to make in their own approach to find more ease for everyone. Yeah. To me, it's this mix of understanding that you're not alone that it's not just you or some deficit that you have, or man, I just can't get my act together or get it right. Other people wouldn't be having this problem. That is absolutely not the case. And if we can understand that, then I think we open ourselves up to seeking support and getting more information. It's not this taboo subject that we're ashamed to even bring up. So if we talk about it more, then it lends itself to be this topic that others can participate in that conversation and access. There isn't that stigma and shame associated with it. I think that really gets in the way. So when you talk to parents, what are some of the common themes that you're seeing that they're saying is hard for them? That's a great question. There's a lot. I think they fall into two categories of, you know, a lot of the parents that I work with. So my private practice is focused on working just with parents who have kiddos with neurobehavioral challenges. So any sort of brain working differently kind of diagnoses. And oftentimes they are seeking out support at a point of frustration and desperation, right? They wouldn't be coming to me if things were going well. And so in those first several months of working with them, I see a lot of feeling very, very hopeless. Like this will never get better. I can't possibly see how the tide can shift and things can get better. Feeling very isolated in their experience. Like this isn't happening with anyone else. I'm the only one. No one would ever believe me if I even told them what was happening in my home with my child. And then these ideas of feeling shame that they aren't enough. If I would have just done something different, I know that my family wouldn't be in this situation. It must be about me and my deficits as a parent feeling suffocated, that there's just no way out. And then also these themes of grief, which I don't think parents, a lot of parents don't recognize it as that initially. But once we start getting into the work, it really does become apparent that this is a grief process that they're working through as well of the loss of ideas that they have now just come to the realization will never be longing for that. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute, just the grief thing. And then we can go back to the other sort of compassion fatigue type stress that people don't acknowledge, but just the grief. Could you just explain a little bit more about that? Because I think you're right. People seem to associate grief with death or a loss of something tangible and maybe think that it's not fair to consider this grief when it is. Right, right. Yeah, so there's this really interesting research done on different populations in relation to disenfranchised grief. It's not a topic that many people are familiar with, but what it is about is grief that's not socially sanctioned or recognized by the general public. And so when we have the death of an individual in our family, people are fairly familiar with that. They bring over meals, they give phone calls, they offer their support, it's recognized, it's acknowledged. But when you have a child that is of any type of special needs, there's this repeated grief process that we're thrown into as parents because of you know certain milestones not being met or things that we're seeing that we think, oh, right, that's not happening as it should with a typical child. 
But the people around us don't necessarily recognize that for what it is. And we usually stuff it down. We don't say anything about it. We, for whatever reason, feel like we're not worthy of calling it that and calling it what it is. And so that just compounds those feelings and the impact because we don't have that natural support through that grief process that we would otherwise. The other thing that I think can really complicate it is when you're in a parenting partnership with someone. You know, I think we're all familiar with, in generally, those stages of grief that aren't linear, right? It kind of follows its own path for each unique individual. And so if you have one parent who is, say, at the point of acceptance, but the other parent is not anywhere close to that, they're still very angry, they're still wondering, why me? Why did this happen to my child? That is going to be a point or could be a point of tension in that relationship, And neither one is bad. Both are very valid experiences, but recognizing that you're at different places, I think is so, so important so that you can continue to kind of work through that together. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the idea that it feels sort of taboo to even admit that you're burned out or that you're just tired out or that this is just exhausting day in and day out. And I think a lot of parents like to... um, Yeah, you're right. They feel shame that it must be easier for everyone else. So we don't talk so much about it, about caregiver stress. So I'd love to talk a lot about caregiver stress today and get into your thoughts on how to recognize that in yourself and and what we can do. Right. Well, I think there is this trajectory in the process where it starts out as what we would all consider to be stress. I call it relational stress. And it's really about this relationship with an individual that you have the constant care and responsibility for, and that person is exceeding your limitations. And it's really about your perspective in that. So I think a lot of times we're looking outward and saying, ah, yeah, the care for this individual is stressing me out, but I should be able to handle it. And what I say to parents is it doesn't matter whether your neighbor, your sister, your your cousin would do it differently. What is it being apprised by you? Yes, it's exceeding my limitations. That's where you need to start and be really honest with yourself and accept that that's okay. If it is apprised by yourself as being too much, that's where you need to first have that level of intervention with yourself, with that caregiver. Mm-hmm. Because stress is so much, a, it's how you see it. If you think that it's out of control and you can't handle it, that's what you mean. That's when it actually has that chemical process in your body of fight or flight. That's exactly right. So you start to see these aches and pains and colds that won't go away. You're less patient. You're more irritable. And it really leads to this. It's like the snowball effect that then leads to that compassion fatigue and that burnout, which is kind of the other end of that spectrum of stress, quote unquote stress, that becomes much, much more serious, more chronic. And the issues that we see in ourselves, like the depression, the anxiety, all of that gets much more intense and serious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read some studies that say parents of kids who are, I'll just say complicated because the studies have looked at different populations, but in general with behavioral challenges and other neurodifferences, that the parents often experience more anxiety, more depression, you know, more stress, more illness than parents of sort of typical kids. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question in my mind. When they look at the physical ramifications of being of compassion fatigue and caregiver burnout, and they look at what physiologically happens with your body. Mm -hmm, The biomarkers. 
Yes. Uh-huh. It is compared in research to those of combat veterans who have experienced combat and have experienced that level of trauma and have become not only desensitized to it, so they don't even know how deeply they're in it, right? Until they pull back and they start having all these other indicators. But those physiological changes are very much the same for caregivers and parents of kids with special needs. So when you put it in that perspective, it's like, wow, this is an experience that is very serious, very unique and unusual, and it really needs to be treated as such. Yeah. And there's so little focus on that, on like stress intervention for parents. So let's talk about that because I know that you do that. (laughs) (laughs) I do. Where do you start? And I think what happens for some parents is You know, we feel like, oh, I can do this for now. And you don't ever think about calibrating for the long term. And then you just become accustomed to it. As you said, as soldiers in combat just get desensitized, you get used to being hypervigilant, always being on high alert, you know, always anticipating the next bad thing to happen. And you don't really start to notice the symptoms or the creep of stress until the problems are real. That's right. And you see the ripple effect through your relationships, through your own physical well-being. And, you know, I've not ever met a parent who their primary goal was to be the best parent that they can be for their child, right? And so they're literally moving mountains to really try to make that happen. And what I try to make sure that they understand very clearly is, again, it's not just my opinion on it. Research has shown us that when someone is suffering from that compassion fatigue, they work harder and harder with diminishing results. I would never say to a parent, well, you just need to work harder, right? Because they're already doing that. It's let's shift this perspective about this situation as much as we can so that we do things differently that will help you kind of get out of this dark place that you're in And while also providing more opportunities for connection with your child and more understanding there. So I think, you know, self-care gets this a lot of talk in our society. And um, (laughs) yeah, people think, oh, yeah, like I'm going to go get a massage and take a bubble bath every night. That's right. (laughs) That's right. That's right. The parents that I work with are like, when you have a child who needs 24-7 supervision, you're not sneaking away to get a massage or a bubble bath, right? It's just not going to happen. And the intervention needs to match the seriousness of the situation. So every parent deserves some self-care practices, and it needs to match the intensity by which you parent. And so when you're parenting a child with especially behavioral challenges or any special need, then the intervention for yourself needs to match that intensity and take some very thoughtful and strategic planning. That's the other piece too, not just this idea of, well, I'll try to fit it in here or there in the next few weeks. It's like, no. Let's sit down and really concretely see what's on your plate. What of these things do you have to do? You have to be the one doing them. And then let's look at everything else and see what we can do to give you more space and time to take care of yourself. Because it's not just this feel-good sentiment. Your life literally depends on it. Mm -hmm. So when you talk to parents and you say, let's examine your plate, how would you have a parent get started? Let's say they're sort of in the middle of the pack here, right? They're not extremely burned out, but they're not just a little bit frustrated. We'll put them in the middle of the bell curve. Let's talk about what kind of interventions make sense for parents at that stage. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think one of the things is taking a step back and being realistic about what is actually happening. 
because we have these ideas that sometimes we don't really examine. So where does the point of intervention need to happen? Where are you in kind of that spectrum of relational stress all the way to caregiver and burnout? What needs to happen immediately? What can you plan for in the future? So that idea of, I actually have an exercise that I go through with some parents. Ooh, I like exercises. (laughs) (laughs) Because it makes it so concrete and it really does look at, let's make a list of what you need to do and you need to do immediately. So have you not seen your doctor in several years? Do you need to go get you know, an annual physical from them? All of these things that do you need to get your finances in order? You know, all of those things that are very urgent. Like fundamental mm-hmm. and nobody can do that. That's right. And those things cause stress when they're sitting there and you know they need to be done, right? So let's get those off your plate right away. Like those are urgent. They need to be done by you. Let's schedule them. Let's get them done. And then what are some things that are urgent that need to be done, but you don't have to be the one to do them? You know, are you the one that goes to every single one of your child's appointments? Are you the one that goes to every single one of your child's IEP meetings? Is that the way that it has to be? How did that even happen? How did that evolve that one parent is doing all of that? And (laughs) I also say, perfection can be our worst enemy in all of this. And so if you have other people that are willing to do what you need them to do, they may not do it as well as you do. They may not do it the same way. You still need to step aside and let them do it. So it's really, like I said, getting fairly concrete and walking through those pieces to really then come out with a plan that's tangible and can create some meaningful change. And some of that I'm sure is self-care. But isn't some of it also emotional self-care, like just shifting your mindset a little bit? How do you help people do that? That's a huge piece of it. So, you know, my experience has been that there's this quote by Brene Brown that I think is perfect in terms of answering the question that you've just asked and working through this piece. It's so Brene Brown If folks aren't familiar with her work, she's a researcher. Her work is wonderful. She has a book called Rising Strong that I think is very applicable to parents who have kids with special health care needs of any kind. But she talks about that the opposite of recognizing that we're feeling something is to deny emotions. And when we disengage from tough emotions, they don't go away. Instead, they own us and they define us. And so, really, we have been. We, I say a parent who's experienced true trauma throughout their parenting experience, our body has been conditioned to protect us. And so we have this fight or flight mode where when we have these tough emotions that we just simply can't handle in that moment, we stuff them down, right? We deny that they're there and we think, okay, got through that. Well, they don't go away. They just build and build and build. And anxiety and depression, I would say, is our body's first signs that there's something there that we're not acknowledging or dealing with. Acknowledging. That's right. That's right. And so I think really the first step is to have that acknowledgement and not have any shame about it. It means we're human, right? Anyone who was experiencing any level of trauma would have a similar reaction to that. And once you acknowledge it, you're then curious, you're asking it to get bigger, (laughs) So when you're asking something to get bigger, that shame and criticism can hopefully kind of go by the wayside. And you can then start to very gently 
go through it, it meaning those full ranges of emotion. So that's one piece of it, I think. I think the other piece is this perspective that our kids who have behavioral challenges are not doing it to us, right? They're not trying to ruin everything. They're not trying to be miserable. That's right. Right. If they could do better, they would, right? The whole Ross Green collaborative problem solving perspective. And so that they too are experiencing this high level of distress. That's what that behavior is communicating to us. And so how can we start to understand their brain differently in a way that can help us understand where that point of friction or distress is for them? Yeah, to really understand like what skills are they lacking that is making them act out in this dysfunctional way? That's right. When one of the skills that they're lacking is the ability to emotionally regulate, so they go from zero to 60 in two seconds, they have these yelling or crying fits that last for hours on end. That is where we, of course, our regulation's contagious. So we as parents need to have those reserves ready to go so we can help them through that, right? We can stay connected to them, help them regulate. That is incredibly depleting right? To have that happen on a regular basis and be able to kind of stay with your child through that process. So again, going back to the self-care, that is not a typical experience for a typical parent. It's just not. So recognizing that and knowing our bucket needs to be overflowing (laughs) in order for us to parent in that way. It's a tall order. And so we need to be able to protect ourselves against that. Yeah, I love to talk about when I first sort of stumbled on Kristen Neff and her research on self-compassion. I thought that was so powerful because she talked a lot about that being in a really challenging situation. Let's say your child is having a meltdown and after you've done what you can for them and you've made sure they're safe, she says the next thing to focus on is yourself internally And telling yourself, you know what, you're doing your best. I'm doing my best. This is hard. I'm doing my best. You know, I'm a good mom or I'm a good dad. And that if you can offer yourself compassion and sort of calm yourself down, many times your child will sort of self-regulate because they sort of feel that energy. That's right. Yeah. That's what I think is fascinating. Yeah. Right. And what I tell parents is that it's not this psychological experience. It is a physiological experience. I mean, the nervous system is amazing and it's really fascinating. But yes, it's why kids who experience great dysregulation relate so well to animals. It's the regulation process. They're helping them regulate. I never thought of that before. That's so cool. Yeah, it really is fascinating. The research behind it is really interesting. But yeah, if we can do that, then, I mean, we've all had those days, right, where we've had a long day with all the other responsibilities happening in our life. Our child has maybe held it together all day, best they can. So they come home and they saved it for you. Yes. And so how do you, in those moments, yeah, center yourself, have your own regulation, you know, on solid ground and intact so that you can help them? with that physiological co-regulation experience. So how, what is the answer? What are some tricks? (laughs) That is the million dollar question. (laughs) No, There's lots of great ideas out there. The perspective that I come from with parents is understandably parents, when they start to work with me, say, tell me what to do, right? This is what my child does every night or every week. Tell me what to do. And I say, well, in the end, I think that actually leads to greater frustration 
because I don't know your child and what works for one may not work for another. So I could give you a list of 10 things. Maybe two of them work pretty well, but you come back and say, that hardly worked at all. Give me another list, right? And so instead, I encourage parents to trust this process of, again, looking at how the brain works, how their child's brain might work differently in all of the ways that it works for us. There's always some pieces of that brain function, cognitive skills that kind of rise to the top in terms of, oh, my child has a lot of difficulty in these particular areas. This is what sets them off. So ideally, you can intervene before there's even that poorness of fit happens, but that's not going to be the case all of the time. It's just not realistic. And so when they do escalate, when they do have their meltdown, what works for my child? So my child, for example, she loves baths. They're very calming to her. Anytime that she's experiencing like having a difficult night or you know, having some kind of level of dysregulation that I can kind of see the trajectory, yeah, I say, do you want to get a bath? Right? I try to not talk to her about what's going on. I don't want to lecture her. I don't want to have the conversation about this led to this led to this. What were you thinking? Like, let's get you in the bath. Now, of course, that's not an option for her all the time. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> if um, only. <laughs> right. But there are other things like we know she loves to take walks, even where we are in Portland, Oregon on a rainy night. If she's having a tough night, yeah. get outside. And what's really cool is that she is now starting to ask for those things. Like she's starting to recognize it in herself, which is really one of the ultimate goals here, right? As they start to understand the way their body works. So what works for my child is not going to work for every child, but there is this thoughtful process that parents can go through to understand their child through this different lens, this brain-based neurobehavioral lens and get to those answers on their own. And then they don't need someone like me. They have the confidence and they have the missing information, the information they were missing before to figure this out ongoing for themselves. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it takes a little bit of suffering to identify the patterns and figure out, oh, that seems to happen every time we go to a loud place, or that seems to happen every time he's hungry. Or, you know, and then once you figure out those things, you can try to either prevent them or minimize them. That's right. Or where is this child developmentally? right? So they're one age chronologically, maybe they're somewhere very different developmentally. A lot younger. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. But they quote unquote, look typical, look neurotypical. And so that information is missing for us, right? We think of them as their chronological age, and that alone can cause this poorness of fit. When their expectations for their chronological age, they have no way of being able to meet those because they're just not there yet. But yes, it's exactly those types of things, being that detective <laughs> um, to figure out where that poorness of fit was and how maybe it can be prevented the next time. So when you think about your own personal self-care and your own little self-care journey, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> prior to becoming a parent of a child whose brain works very, very differently, I thought of myself as a really relaxed, easygoing person. <laughs> I still believe I am at my core. <laughs> yep, somewhere but, in there. Right. But parenting a child who struggles in those ways will... It's a good test. It's a good test, and it, it really highlights the ways in which we're human, I'll say, first of all, but the ways that our values really clash up against behaviors, where our buttons are. 
where we really have our buttons that are pushed. And so I've learned a lot about that, about myself. And I feel like where I am in my journey, I'm pretty clear on that. I have a really good sense of what that is for me. And so one of the things that has been really important in my journey is figuring that out, first of all, having some support where I can really kind of understand that and have a clear idea of what those things are. And then these preventative plans. So exercise is very important to me. And of course, time with my husband is very important to me. Time with friends is very important to me, those relationships. So I'm very extroverted. That's the type of thing that fills up my bucket. It's not going to be the same for everybody, but we get it on the calendar. My husband and I have very clear ideas on what the other needs. And it's not, I'm not leaving it for him to guess. I've just told him. (laughs) Yeah, which is good because he can't read your mind. That's right. That's right. And he does the same for me and we support each other and make it happen for each other. So when we talk about that, again, that continuum of here's the relational stress and you're feeling like you're nagging more you're less patient, maybe you're lashing out at your kids more often. That's at the point when I say, Ooh, okay, something's going on here. I don't like who I am in these moments. What do I need to do to kind of get a breather and center myself again? Because if you can do it there, that compassion fatigue and that burnout, which is of course at this other end of the spectrum, hopefully that's what prevents you from getting way over there. And then the other piece that I would say is, you know, with my daughter specifically and the challenges she has, these neurobehavioral challenges, it's really about parenting from that brain-based approach too. I have a quote unquote neurotypical son who is just 15 months older than my daughter. And so it's very kind of clear comparison every day of what's kind of typical and what's not, right? Even with that reflected to me so clearly in terms of how different their development is, it still amazes me how quickly I can go to this point of she's doing it on purpose. She could do something different if she wanted to. I mean, I do this for a living yeah. with parents, right? So, <laughs> And it's, it is so easy to think you're manipulating me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You need to try harder, right? I've told you this a million times. You know, you're just choosing not to listen. And so I know that if I can fall back into that very quote unquote traditional lens, traditional way of parenting that anyone can. Yeah. It's a good test all the time for you. Yes, it is. Definitely trying to practice what I preach every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. So when you think about what else has gotten you through and what has helped other people, do you have certain words of wisdom that you live by? or like a mantra that you sort of live by that has helped you or that you coach your parents to try to think of? Yeah, you know, I think, I don't know if I have one specific mantra. Ooh, you can give a whole bunch if you'd like. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a collection of ideas. I think really the foundation of that is that we are human and what we're doing is really, really hard. And that there's not many people who can truly understand and relate to our experience. There are a lot of people who try very hard and provide us as much support as they can from that perspective. But because our experience is so unique that it is very difficult for others to kind of enter into our world and understand that. So that comparison that we are all so easily, I mean, and you know, social media doesn't help us in that to really try to stay away from that because it really is comparing oranges to apples. It's just not a fair 
comparison and it's not healthy or helpful. Related to that is this idea of boundaries. So knowing where we end and another begins. I mean, that's again, another from Brene Brown and her work, but that's so important for our health and our well-being. And that doing that, having healthy boundaries, even as a parent with our children and knowing what our limits are there, where we need other people, that village to step in for us, there is nothing wrong with that. That's about being human. It's not any deficit on our part. And then this idea that we do need more than just that typical self-care, that our lives, like I said before, literally depend on it, that there are real and serious physical health and mental health ramifications of not attending to that. Yeah, and it prevents you. Right. And it's not about being selfish. It's about actually being the best parent we can. We cannot parent in the way these kiddos require if we're not doing our own work and filling our bucket up. If there's things that fill up our bucket, it's not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. And so you have more to give or something to give. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what personal growth you go through in this experience. I mean, it is a, a little bit of a silver lining, but it's hard to see when you're right in the thick of it. Yes, it is. And I think, again, getting out of those feelings of isolation and hopelessness, if you're able to find a group or you know a person who can help you kind of take that step back and see that you're not alone, that that's the first step. You know, one of the things that I have seen in the research that I think is really important too about that support is talking about how compassion fatigue and burnout can be contagious if it's not in a positive light. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. And it makes sense to me once I heard about it, because if you have groups of folks who share your experience, but there's no real talk about positive actions to take, to take care of yourself or shift that perspective or shift that situation to a more positive place, then it's just going to make that burnout and compassion fatigue even more prevalent for you. I tell parents, you know, choose your support wisely. You're worth that. And also it makes a true impact and difference in terms of whether you are getting better, healthier yourself or not. Hmm, I like that a lot. So much wisdom and you packed it all into this (laughs) short podcast. (laughs) We could go on, we could dig into so many of these topics for hours. It's just fascinating and so helpful and so inspiring. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm happy to do it. And I truly feel honored to be able to talk with you about this. And as I said before, it's something that I have become convinced over the years we don't talk nearly enough about. So I'm always happy to have the opportunity. Yeah, we're aligned. I hope we can make a difference for parents because they deserve it. And like you said, we all want to be the best parents we can be. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Eileen. I hope maybe you can come back someday and we can dig into some more of this. Oh, I would love to do that. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. 
And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some wild peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well being starts with parent well being.